Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Fantastic guest today. I'm very excited to get into conversation with Noah Treshnell. Noah has, until relatively recently, he was the Chief Commercial Officer and CXO at Vineyard Vines, perhaps one of the most successful new lifestyle brands launched in the last decade or two. So really excited to talk to him about the tremendous success that he helped drive there. But he has years and years and years of retail experience predating that as well, including six years he spent at Levi Strauss as a Senior Vice President for the Americas. Before that, he was with Sephora and several other major brands. So a lot of experience in this space, in a space which, tra which is transforming so much now. And now, most recently, he's founded his own company called DOB, focused on values-based business and retailing. And we're going to really have, a no, I no doubt, an interesting conversation about that as well. So much, much ground to cover. Noah, thank you so much for being here. Anything you'd like to add to my uh, introduction? No, no, just uh, thank you. Love that intro. Now I got to live up to it. Exactly. Well, that's how we make sure our guests do a good job. We give such a big, big send up that they, they have to bring their A game. So I know you will. So, you know, one thing I know from the comments we get on this podcast is the things that our listeners love the most are the war stories, the real world in the trenches stuff that people have gone through. And, you know, with something like Vineyard Vines, for example, making that brand so successful, connecting with this generation. I have three teenagers and I would say at least two of them, the girls, just Vineyard Vines was like the brand that they were all about, the whale. The whale. Well, that's the thing. It's the whale, right? It's not even really Vineyard Vines. It's the whale. So it shows the power of branding. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, I remember having this conversation with them because the Vineyard Vine products are fairly high priced. And so I remember saying to them, okay, so, you know, you bought this shirt. It was, you know, $90 or whatever else looks a little like a shirt you could buy for $25, you know, but they're like, but it wouldn't have the whale. And I'd say, well, but what is the whale? Like, and I was just also curious to understand what is the whale ad? And then they would say, it's what it represents. Yeah. Well, the whale actually is it's foil gold. So it's, it's, it's $30 for that whale to put that on it. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> You had me. It is probably $30 of value, but that value is what you're talking about, which is the brand equity, really, right? And what the brand represents and what the brand stands for. Yeah, so, I, yeah, we can get into that. I can uh, share a little bit about kind of where, just a couple minutes on where I'm from and, and some of the companies I've worked for, just to give you a, a little bit of the background. That would be great. So born, born and raised in Northern California, went to school in UC, Southern California, uh, but most of my family is from out here now, back east. Now I call it out west because I'm on the east coast. Grew up on both coasts and started in finance, but quickly pivoted to Sephora. Sephora, as we all know it today, uh, really category leader. Um, I was on the team when they first broke into the U.S. Sephora was, is built on choice, discovery, every brand being equal, delivering amazing service, and also a loyalty program with Rouge that is, would rival any other loyalty program in the space in retail. And we built that when I was, the, the early stages of that one when, when I was there. 
And I think as I talk about DOB later in this conversation, a lot of the things that we've incorporated into DOB are the things that we've loved. Wes is my co-founder, Wes McCaw. The things that we've loved for the, com for the companies that we've worked for and with, um, and we've kind of left some of the things that we don't care much for, but, but we, more importantly, we, we pulled the things out that we love. And the discovery of Sephora is really at the center of that brand and what makes it amazing. But we're for Restoration Hardware, a couple stints, was part of the whole transformation of Resto. Really interesting story around filling a niche between design and mid-market and delivering a omni-channel, customer-first experience in stores, online, and catalog that I think is also number one in the industry. I mean, if you're spending a $10,000 on a couch, it's got to be great experience around that couch. You think about $100 for a shirt, $10,000 for a couch, right? Amazing portfolio of brands that you've been involved with because they're all so innovative in their space. When we talk about restoration hardware, I mean, I remember you're, you're absolutely right. It, they're really looking at this space in a very fresh way. I remember being in uh, West Palm Beach and looking, people are like, where should we go for lunch? And they're like, oh, we got to go to restoration hardware for lunch. <laughs> yeah, you're like, what? What? <laughs> so I wound up having lunch at Restoration Hardware because didn't buy a $10,000 couch, but like they're welcoming you into this experience in a way that I, I know of very few other retailers that are, are trying to create that whole kind of sense of hospitality within a retail environment. What you experienced in Palm Beach was uh, a manifestation of a very early concept. When I was there on the executive team, according to Gary, small knit team and you know often innovation comes from necessity right restoration hardware we were staring down the biggest housing collapse in history you know record you know, modern history 2008 2009 as a home furnishing retailer and so we were in a position where either it was lean into growing market share and transformational growth or get really conservative and button down button down the hatches which actually was the key phrase for one of our competitors at the time for their management conference. It was button down the hatches. And we said, we're going to take the opposite because we're poised for growth. So now is the time. And it was this, it, we couldn't, you know, we didn't have the capital to invest in hundreds of additional stores, like many of our competitors, like Pottery Barn and Crate and Barrel. We had around a hundred stores at the time, 120. But it was, we're going to invest in digital and we're going to invest in the stores that we have and we're going to invest in our people and we're going to align the organization differently so that we think about customer first, we measure success based on total demand of the business, and then we begin to incent everybody, including the, all the way up to CEO and executive level, all, all, all the way through the organization to, to associates and stores around this notion of don't think about how a customer wants to engage, think about engaging them. And so when a customer comes into the store, let's think about how delivering an amazing experience. They may buy there, they may buy online, or they may buy, they may pick up a phone and call call center, which was still a thing at that time, the catalog. But these are considered purchases. What's important is that we show up as the first two or three brands in someone's mind when they wake up in the morning and they think, I want X. And that really became the orientation for the whole organization and experience and the customer became first. 
And, and in many ways, that's, that playbook is still in play today for Restaurant. It's part of their core success. When I was there, we took business like 400 million to 1.5 billion. So it worked. Tremendous. Well, these are all such bold brands. Did you find when you got to them that, that that's kind of how they already thought that was already their culture and ready to go? Or, or were there battles to be fought to, to sort of win the, the argument that, you know, we need to, whether it was Sephora being such an early pioneer in digital or the things that Restoration Hardware does around customer experience, or I don't know as much about all the nuances of how Vineyard Vine operates other than they're a great brand, but what did you have to do to, to get them to those points? And what, what battles did you have to fight, if any? With, well, all, there's always battles, always, <laughs> always battles. You know, I think sometimes they're internal. Those are, those are sometimes the hardest, the internal battles, because that means you have lack of strategic alignment, usually at the executive level. With Sephora and Resto, the battle was outside, for the most part, was outside of the four walls of the home office and the stores. It was, you know, it was outside. The interesting thing with Sephora was at the root was discovery and still is discovery where you have a, you have a multi-billion dollar brand that's on a display right next to a $2 million brand. And you can imagine the conversation with the multi-billion dollar brand not particularly happy about that equal placement. So at that time, when Sephora was still growing, you had, we had uh, partners like Clinique or in Mac, massive juggernauts. And, you know, there were tough conversations like what, you know, we want the corner of the store if we're gonna be here. We don't wanna be right next to Too Faced. It's two guys operating a small business out of LA. And they weren't used to that. Macy's, and traditional wholesale for cosmetics was based on that. It was based on paid placement. Yeah, they had their salespeople, their counter, and and Sephora was a was a transformation of that industry, and it required a different thinking uh, from the big brands more than anyone else. They had to see the value in being part of this experience and part of this discovery, maybe unlocking a new customer that they would have never never otherwise been in front of. Some brands got that, some brands didn't. I'm not going to name names there. But we did get a lot of big partners that came along for the ride. And you can look at how well that paid off for everybody. It was a win-win. But that was the big transformational thinking was if you apply old world mechanics to something that's transformational, it won't be transformational. And then at Restoration Hardware, out of necessity, we did this alignment. We we did have a reduction of force in 2008, 2009 preemptively. We, we had more to do with less people. And so we had to do this reorganization that was focused on less breadth, but, but all touch points with customers. So if you own, say, you know, furniture as a category, you owned it for every single channel for the business, catalog, wholesale, retail, e-commerce. That was a huge unlock because that really focused every level of the organization on delivering an amazing experience first, demand first. As part of that transition though, which was, it was a massive transition, no one else was doing it at the time. We not only had to have new KPIs, new data set, all of those things, tra training for the organization of how to think differently about the business, but it did come down to delivering the right tools 
for our people so that they could operate as effectively, if not more effectively, than they did under the old set of KPIs and, and structure. And we, we, we were moving so quickly that we tried to transition too fast. You know, luckily, we had a very transparent organization, and our, our team said, I'm not exactly sure how to do what you're asking me to do. And we were responsive enough and we listened enough as an executive team where we heard that and we said, okay, we need a few months, we need to retool, we have to put the dashboards together, we have to get alignment on these metric definitions. And then so when we come back out, we can really do it right. Kind of had that mulligan, but you only get one. But we came back out, we delivered the tool sets, we trained it in, the organization actually had a preview to where we were going because we had already gone there. And it was like the second time around we did it right. Yeah, I mean, I think largely that structure is still in place today for, for them. And I think it's a big part of the success is that organizational alignment. But sort of making sure that you, you can do what you say you're gonna do, and then being responsive and open to your organization to hear how you might need to course correct I think those are two very, very important things in the midst of any transformation. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I've heard you talk about this before and talk about sharing KPIs as a way of sort of busting silos and getting people really aligned so they share the same, the same goals. And obviously we have, you know, in all of retailers that have a digital component, you have these kind of channel questions of who owns what and who gets credit for what. And often that drives undesirable behavior relative to the overall brand. I'm curious though, getting those KPIs aligned, in my experience, there's like this one fundamental like puzzle, and I'm curious how you addressed it, which is on the one hand, when people share KPIs, if you and I have the same KPI, then in theory, that puts us on the same team. We both want the same outcome. Yeah. But another key goal of KPIs is often to measure our individual contribution. Because of course, the goal of the KPI is to make me bust my ass to do the part that I'm being measured on, and you bust your ass to the part you're being measured on, and if you're in charge of the stores and I'm in charge of the website, then usually there's a desire to say, well, wait a minute, you know, Howard's bonus should be based on the website. And so it becomes this, this puzzle of, well, if you, if you share KPIs, then you're more aligned, but maybe less accountable. And if you have unique KPIs, then you're more accountable, less aligned. And then the other solution I've seen sometimes is, well, we'll tier it, you know, 30% of the bonus will be based on this. And, and then you wind up, and I've been in this situation myself years ago, I worked for a company, a large consulting company, and I had like nine different contributors. Well, this was seven and a half percent. Everything was seven and a half percent. And at a certain point, you're like, all right, forget it. I can't even follow all these. So that's the other problem is it gets too complicated. So I haven't really ever figured out how to untangle this puzzle. I'm curious what you've learned about trying to get these KPI issues right. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Resto again. You know, it was, and it took a while to get there. I mean, we started on a net sale basis, and it's amazing how many organizations are still, still based on net sales performance indicators. Mm -hmm. When the world is a demand world, like, it's not that the flow through to bottom line isn't important, but those are financial mechanics, those are operational efficiencies. And you should have teams and projects that are focused on optimizing those things and doing the right thing for the customer, like returns. But that's not why you're in business. You're not in business to have the best return reverse logistics in the world. I mean, unless you're a reverse logistic return company. It's really about demand first, getting an orientation to a, to, to a metric that applies to everyone in your organization. For Resto, that was demand. 
Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. And then it was, okay, now you, you may have a smaller scope. Maybe you're one or two years out of school and you have a very, you have a small category within the furniture category, but you own that category and you're, and, and you're incentivized on demand. And in the store, that store is looking at demand metrics. Are they up or down from last year, from last hour? Then I think when you get super granular is also when you can get sort of upside down. Like you can say, well, I want that sales associate, you know, I want her or him to know exactly where they stand at the individual hour level. It's like, okay, but it, you know, it, at the end of the day, is that really going to incentivize them to deliver the best experience? Yeah, maybe there's a different set of metrics that we need to look at to do that. Because it can, it can very quickly get to a place where if you're not careful as an organization, I think where your metrics are used to police your people mm -hmm. and command and control versus to unlock their potential. And then I'd say, if you need to do that as an organization, you don't have the right people. You really want to think about your culture, your alignment around these important metrics that will govern current and future success. You want that visible, not to be a secret. Everybody sees it like a score on a scoreboard in a football game. You can't hide from it, but let's set, but then it's a mentality. I think of celebrating when you knock down the pins versus punishing when there's a gutter ball. And you know, it's about how you want to orientate as an organization. And then you get into these sort of like sounds cliche, but hire really hard and the management gets a lot easier. If you man, if you hire lazy, you're going to need a lot of performance metrics to make sure that you're effectively managing your organization. And I know easier said than done, but this kind of, it does kind of come down to some of these more basic principles. Really, really good points. And I, I want to get to DOB. So I want to ask you one quick follow-up on that hiring hard issue and then move on to your current, very, very exciting company. When you say to hire hard, is there one thing that you've learned in all the companies you've been at around that? Because of course, everyone would like, as you say, easier said than done. But is there a one, one piece of advice you'd give to somebody, especially now, you know, the labor market is so tight that a lot of companies are like, I'll take any warm body just to fill that seat. Anything that you've seen really be a great tactic to make sure that you're bringing the right people into your organization? Yeah, it's to invest in your people. It's to, it's to invest in you know, their training. It's in, to invest into the onboarding. You know, I mean, some of the things that we lost along the way for efficiencies, like for retail, you know, the best management training programs were cross-functional programs. In your first six weeks in the organization, you sit in multiple seats in the organization. And you're like, well, that's an investment. Yeah, it's an investment. Guess who it's in? Your people. They get to understand what it's like to literally sit in other people's seats before they go to their function. They get to spend a week or two in the store. Maybe they sit with the call center. That's how they really get an appreciation for the organization, for the customer. And then, in the, in, and then a part of it is also, of course, in the hiring process itself. If, if you start early, 
in someone's career and you set up the guard, you know, you, you support them and you invest in them, it may not pay immediate dividends, but I would guarantee it's going to pay long-term returns. I love it. I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, I want to turn to what you're doing now around values-based retailing. So would you just give everyone an explanation of what DOB is and what you do and, and what inspired you to move into this space? So DOB stands for Data Birth Inc. Our site is uh, dobdrop.com. The drop is meant to be like new, fresh, new brands coming on, new product. But the core of it is DOB, which is date of birth. And we named it that for many different reasons, but it is transformational. We accelerate and incubate new up and coming brands that really should have a bigger platform in our view. You know, when Wes and I were sitting around having a drink and talking about the next, our next thing, uh, we would talk shop all the time and we would share, these are the things we love about the companies we work for, the brands. How would we pull this all together? So discovery, storytelling, all of these were important ingredients in the DOB dish, so to speak. But at the center, one of the really interesting conversations we had, which I think we'll get into maybe a value conversation around this, but we said, we don't want to end up assuming success and scale, and that this mar it's a marketplace, multi-branded marketplace focused on apparel and accessories. That's DOB sort of in, a, in more of a business sense. At the underneath that is the community. And so when we were shaping this idea, we said, we don't want to end up in a state 10 years from now or five years from now or three years from now or next year even, but especially down the road, assuming success where we're asking what our purpose is. And because we had been in a lot of those ex executive boardrooms before, I'm not going to say who. We had been in the boardrooms where far down the chain, it was, what do we really stand for other than profit? Revenue and profit is an outcome. We turned it around and said, you know, let's base DOB on the principles themselves first and put profit second as close second. And so we said, what do we really stand for and believe ourselves? Environmental sustainability, being inclusive. And if you're inclusive and you provide access, then diversity is an outcome. And so we said inclusion and we said local saying that you're everywhere for everybody means you're nowhere. You have no responsibility or authentic tie at the geo level to the people that live in the geography, whether they're your manufacturing or your customers or your team. And environmental sustainability, clearly, I think people are becoming more aware of the importance of that with climate change. We said these three things really is what makes DOB, and that's how we're going to shape our community. Uh, it's a marketplace in a sense. You can come on, you can experience new brands. It gives you the convenience of not having to go research hundreds of brands, find out, are they really doing what they, what they say they're doing? We do that heavy lift for you. You can come on to DOB and you can have hopefully the confidence, right? The trust in DOB that we've done that due diligence and that the brands that we're partnering with really are doing something meaningful in the world back to the three principles that we stand on. That's really what it's about. And value, the value in DOB really comes is at the crux of, I know, a conversation we've had in the past of what is value. 
Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into that. I want to ask you first, how do you feel that has impacted? There's many examples one could give of, of brands recently in particular who've seen real sales success as a result of really embracing values. Obviously, classic examples would be Nike support of Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matters, which you know, obviously had a huge backlash among some customers who said, I'll never buy Nike again, but a much bigger group of people who became much more passionate about the brand because it really took a stand and put something at risk and showed that they really weren't only focusing on profits. And frankly, on the other end of the political spectrum, you could look at companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A, who, you know, even though they're not my values, they clearly saw their business boom when they made their values really a part of who they were. And for at least those people who shared those values, that created a massive additional attraction. So I'm curious, did you see that level of engagement that was so much higher because those values that you embraced? Absolutely. And, you know, like we just launched like four and a half months ago. So we're very still early in the trajectory, but we're building this authentic community. The feedback we're getting is amazing. It's, you know, it's feedback you would never otherwise get if you weren't purpose-based and principle-based. And we're not saying that our principles are shared by everybody, to your point. I think it's about bringing together like-minded customers with like-minded brands and being that connecting force as, as a community, right? There's the marketplace dynamic, but it's more about the community. Part of it's also like we, we do blogs and podcasts. We bring on experts uh, like Marcy, who was recently on, who's a, who's e who coined eco fashion like you know over two decades ago. So like pioneers in the industry, they're they're experts of far above and beyond what you know, where Wes and I are at. This is a journey for us too, but providing that information and not being always sell first, I think, is part of how you drive an authentic community. Levi's was a great example of a scale scale retailer that does this. You know, they took a stand on on HIV and the AIDS epidemic, and they said this is a human problem. This is something. This is a human challenge for us to tackle. Let's tackle it. Let's not. We, nobody should be vilified in this. Like this is this is a tragedy that needs to be addressed, and it might be disproportionately affecting some groups other than others. But this is a, this is something we all need to solve for. It's part. Of, it's impacting our entire community. And they did that and it, it did hurt sales for them, but it was, they took a stand to your point. So I, we're not, I'm not about the judgment saying this is what you have to stand for. But I am saying, if you want a brand that is built on an authentic connection with your customers, you know, short-term and more importantly, long-term, take a stand, like stand for something. If you look at like Allburns is a great example. They took a stand and it's really worked for them. But they, I think they would have taken that stance whether sustainability became really popular or not. That's kind of the point. Uh, Patagonia, Patagonia could be five times the size they are. Says the guy wearing the Columbia zip up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is the, yeah, this had, they have a great story as well. But they take Columbia too. Like take a, they take a long Levi's, Columbia, Patagonia. They take they take a longer term view, and they there's certain compromises they aren't willing to make. And that and that's what a purpose based business is about. 
Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. You know, I, 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 I love what you've done, and I, I think I, I, I assume that not only it, is it a business model that seems like today anyway, I hear what you said about Levi's, how they took a certain stand years ago, and it wasn't necessarily positive for sales. So it may not be a guarantee that taking a stand is good for sales, but it seems like, especially today, especially with millennials, it often is, and it sounds like it has been for you. I'm wondering, it's one thing when you're starting a new company and you can kind of say to yourself, well, you know, what do I believe in? I'm going to start a company based on my own values. And I imagine that must be very rewarding because you can base it on what you personally believe in. When you're in a situation, and I think a lot of big companies are starting to see this idea of having authentic values is valuable in the marketplace. And then you have this ironic thing where they're like, okay, so we have to manufacture some authentic values. <laughs> How can we do that? You know, <laughs> what's the process? Who do I need to pay to get some values around here? You know, who's working on the production of values? Yeah. So, I mean, any thoughts or advice for companies that aren't starting from scratch and look around and say, you know, we're a big bank or we're a big retailer. And yeah, we don't really seem to stand for anything more than the obvious, you know, a place you can come and buy stuff and we want to make money. How do you go from there to a place where you really are embracing some authentic values to get both the sort of satisfaction and community and also the, the business benefit, the brand impact that others have seen? It's honestly, it's, I think it's harder, it's harder to do, to your point, in a mid to late stage company. It, it's harder to do authentically. Yeah. You could spend a tremendous amount of marketing telling people over and over and over, I hate to use it, but Shell saying that they're the leader in sustainable energy. Like that, you, you better have a big marketing budget to get that across authentically. But on the other side of it, I think that doesn't, you, we need to allow, I think, uh, companies to pivot. And, and if, and if, a you know, like you see some of the big automobile manufacturers that are pivoting to EV. Yeah. That's a good thing. Sure. But the important part is, I think, the authenticity of it. Because if you get, if, if you're just playing into the buzz of the, now it's the day or the month or the quarter or the year, that people see through more than ever. The transparency is real. Customers are thankfully empowered. And you, like, you are gonna permanently damage any opportunity, authenticity, if you, if you waffle all over the place. And just try to put marketing dollars behind the it message of the day. You do have to kind of take a stand and say, what, what's authentic to us and what do we believe in and that we're going to stand behind for a good period of time. We won't grow tired of it because we believe in it. And then, and then, and then being comfortable communicating that in a way where you're just sharing what you're doing and you're being transparent about it. I think those are some of the key things, but it's got, it cannot be a flavor of the day. Well, and I think you said a key idea there, which is to be transparent about what you're doing, which is a little different than, having a big marketing budget, which at least to me implies a lot about telling people. You know, I think people today tend to be cynical, particularly of longstanding brands, about what they say, especially what they say about themselves versus what they do. 
And when you can let people simply see through your actions what you're doing, that does tend to ring more true than the claims you make if you don't have strong evidence of them. A hundred percent. And and I think that you, intrinsic to DOB is every brand that is on DOB is in service to one of the three core principles. And when we say in service, they're doing something. They're actually not talking that much about it at all, but they're doing it. Like Yama, who's, who was our first brand that signed, gives 20% of their revenue to put orphan children through school in Kenya and Ethiopia, where the two founders are from. And 1432, they manufacture out of Pakistan. They come from a manufacturing family from Pakistan. And they said, what would it take to double the salary of all the artisans that make the product? 20 cents per unit. But the key is that 20 cents flows through to that person and it doesn't get gobbled up along the way. And so they built the brand on this very premise. They give 50% of their profit back to the artisan, in many cases, or women artisans in Pakistan that would make very little, but now they're, now they're in part of the business model. And so where deal, I think part of it is making it intrinsic in your business model so that when you transact, you know, when you, when you have purchases, there is a direct correlation to the give back or giving to something that is greater than yourself. I think that is one way to do it. There are other ways, but that way is sort of an undeniable. It's not like we're going to make a bunch of money at the end of the year. We're going to write a blank check. Maybe we'll see, see how the quarter profits are. Right. Or you're a giant corporation that makes billions of dollars and, oh, you just donated a million dollars to a children's hospital. It's like, that's nice, but it sounds like a PR effort. With the big check. Right, right. <laughs> the Ed McMahon check. Like, that's a huge check. I mean, not like the dollar amount's huge, just like, it's just a big check. But, well, because the thing that we know about that, and if, if profits are tight that quarter, there's no check. But when it's intrinsic to your business model, there's always the check. It's built in to how you conduct yourself. And, and I, the last thing I say about that is that Z, well, maybe not the last, but millennials are one thing. Z's expect this. And if a company has been around for a long time, whether it's a brand, certainly in retail, where people are wearing your product, it's very personal. They, there is a sense of what did the clothes in your closet say about you? Not what do you say about your clothes? Mm -hmm. And Z's see this very distinctly. And you know, to some degree, that's always been true about the clothes in your closet. It's just a set of different values. You know, when I was a kid, having an IZOD shirt said something about you, nothing about your, how you're giving back to the world, but, but something. And so clothing very often, and especially the brands, branded clothing, is at least a significant part about what you're communicating about yourself. It's a form of language and labeling yourself with certain values. And you know, driving a BMW implies something about you that you want the world to know. At least it could be the case for many people who are using or you know, carrying a, a Gucci purse or whatever it may be. Exactly, yeah, like the private member's jacket. Members only, right? <laughs> right. Members only. That's, that is the antithesis of Z. So, you know, I know we're running tight on time here, but it makes me want to ask one last question and almost circling back to Vineyard Vines, because we were saying at the beginning that 
what made vineyards vines so valuable was that that whale represented something. Yeah. Now it didn't necessarily represent giving back to the world, but it represented something that was valuable. The space you're in now is much more about brands that represent something in a particular domain or a set of domains that's sort of what corporations like to call the ESG domain, right? And so I wanted to ask you this last question, which is, it seems interesting when you say a brand should have values and a brand should stand for something, it seems to me that that covers a, a large potential set of things you could stand for. And I, I guess I would argue that there are some brands like the Tom's Shoes or Ben and Jerry's or some of the brands that you work with that clearly stand for something that is about, at least in their view, making the world better, whether that's you know d diversity or environmentalism or what have you. There are other brands that still stand for something, but like a Harley Davidson, they stand for something, freedom, the open road, or Disney, you know, wholesome family entertainment, or Apple, you know, innovation, empowerment, that aren't necessarily, they're still values of a type, but they're not in that, I'm gonna give back to the world space. And I'm wondering, how you view that and are those, is that still part of values? I still think it's better to have something that you stand for than, because there are other companies that don't stand for anything, right? They just, they're just in business. How do you see that continuum of having ESG related values versus non-ESG related values versus no values in today's marketplace, particularly with the millennials and the Zs? The brands that you just mentioned that stood out to me were the brands that really did and in some cases still do stand for something other than driving revenue and profit. Apple. Jobs started Apple with a very philanthropic point of view, which was, I, my mom was a 30-year educator. She was one of the first in the Bay Area. Her school district got Apple IIEs to date myself. Zs would look at this today and be like, what is this? But, but I thought it was an amazing thing. I would like go to her class after class and play on it, like just try to figure it out. But he gave, they gave these computers to schools. His view was, if you look at his early talks, like when he went back to Harvard and talked to, 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 to the business school and such, his, he would constantly talk about providing access to educational tools, putting the power into the, giving the power to the individual to discover knowledge themselves and that technology was a facilitator of that that's what apple was built on and i think in many ways they're still drafting off of that same principle today even if they're not doing it it's you know it, all the time that's still at the core i mean look it's the apple it's it's knowledge you're sharing knowledge harley davidson a domestic manufacturer that stood of great quality and craftsmanship. I think that's still at the core. It's still at the core. That's why if you build it right, or you pivot with something that is sustainable and lasting and meaningful, I think that you can de deliver value, as we would say, in a much more meaningful and authentic way for your customers and ultimately as well for your shareholders and your investors. Um, and that the long-term trajectory that you create is long-term. Uh, I mean, this is the belief of DOB. So, you know, uh, part of it is proving this out as well. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well said. I know we're already uh, over our scheduled time. So even though we, we could keep going for hours talking about this, because these are fascinating, really, really deep, 
honestly profound topics and questions about what is it, what is a company really there for and what does it mean and what's the meaning behind it. But probably should wrap it up here. My producer will be like, what did you do? Make a two hour podcast. So Noah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, any, uh, any closing thoughts or anything you want to make sure people know if they want to connect with you or find out more about DOB or, or find out how they can connect with some of those cool brands in your marketplace? Yeah, sure. You can uh, link, look me up on LinkedIn, Noah Treshnell. Our website's dobdrop.com. And then our IG is dobdrop. So yeah, check us out. Uh, really, you, by supporting us, you're supporting the brands that have are making a positive dent in this universe. So it's much bigger than us. So yeah, just appreciate people checking us out. So absolutely. We'll put all those links and the Instagram handle in the show notes. So you can look down there and click right on them to get to those places. And please join me in thanking Noah for just some fantastic insights from a really, really impressive career working with some really awesome brands. Thank you so much for being here. And thanks to all of you, as always, for listening and watching the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, keep transforming. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.